Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker, and I hope you all had a good Thanksgiving. For those of you that celebrated it last week, uh, I know I had a really nice uh, break and got some time off, which is always good. Hopefully, you guys managed to uh, avoid any horrible political conversations over the uh, Thanksgiving table this year. I know it's been kind of crazy lately, so <laughs> probably hard to do. But anyway, I hope you had a good time, and I hope you had a nice break. Uh, we've got a lot to cover here. I've actually had a lot of news stories happen over the last uh, few weeks when, you know, we had the interview shows airing, and I can't quite get through it all today because I want to do some other stuff for our tip of the week. But I did pick out a few news stories here that I want to make sure we go through this week because they're going to kind of lead into, or at least some of them are going to lead into my tip of the week, which will be kind of lengthy this week, and I'll explain that in a second. We're going to talk about how a new recent federal court ruling has ruled against suspicionless searches at the border. We'll talk a little bit about what that means. We've talked about that several times on the show before, but this is a big deal. We're also going to talk about how a recent report revealed that Google has been munging a lot of our very private medical data uh, without without notifying us, and that's uh, kind of creepy. We'll talk about the, the pros and cons of that. I ran across an interesting article about how many vulnerabilities come pre-installed on a lot of Android phones. And uh, finally, we'll talk about, uh, we'll give an update on the police ring doorbell stuff. Because uh, some senators asked Amazon, hey, you know, what, what, what gives? What are you doing with this video? And basically the response was, well, once we give it to the police, they can keep it as long as they want and do whatever they want with it, including sharing it with other people. So we're going to talk about uh, what what that really means for us. And then we'll get into my tip of the week, which is this uh, this week is going to be my best and worst gift idea list for 2019. Uh, this started as a annual blog entry that I that I did. I think I don't know if I started last year or the year before. Uh, but this list, unlike, you know, finding the best, you know, Cyber Monday or Black Friday deals, you know, finding the best price. My list is about the gifts that are the best and worst for security and privacy. So. Let's get into the news. So we've talked several times on this show about uh, border searches and how your rights as a U.S. citizen uh, or U.S. resident change when you're at the border, particularly when you're coming back uh, into the United States. The you know Customs and Border Patrol, the CBP, as well as Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, ICE or ICE, have some special powers that really seem unconstitutional uh, at the border. And they can really, until recently, search your electronic devices without any suspicion. Uh, but that has recently been challenged in court. And where it stands now is there was a federal court ruling that basically said you can't do that. Um, so we've talked about this with, uh, people from the electronic frontier foundation, and I might see if I can get one of those guys to come back and talk about this more in depth. Um, but we've talked about it many times and this is a really important ruling. And so I'm going to read a little bit from their kind of press release or their article about, about what happened in this court. So from their article, it says, in a major victory for privacy rights at the border, a federal court in Boston ruled today that suspicionless searches of travelers' electronic devices by federal agents at airports and other U.S. ports of entry are unconstitutional. The ruling came in a lawsuit filed by the American Civil Liberties Union, or the ACLU, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF, and the ACLU of Massachusetts on behalf of 11 travelers whose smartphones and laptops were searched without individualized suspicion at U.S. ports of entry. 
And quoting from Esha Bandari, who's a staff attorney at ACLU, she says, This ruling significantly advances Fourth Amendment protections for millions of international travelers who enter the United States every year. By putting an end to the government's ability to conduct suspicionless fishing expeditions, the court reaffirms that the border is not a lawless place and that we don't lose our privacy rights when we travel. Unquote. And then Sophia Cope from the ESF says, uh, this is a great day for travelers who can now cross the international border without fear that the government will, in the absence of any suspicion, ransack the extraordinarily sensitive inf- information we all carry in our electronic devices. Unquote. The district court puts an end to the Customs and Border Patrol and Immigration and Customs Enforcement asserted authority to, to search and seize travelers' devices for the purposes far afield from enforcement of immigration and customs laws. Border officers must now demonstrate individualized suspicion of illegal contraband before they can search a traveler's device. The number of electronic searches at U.S. ports of entry has increased significantly. Last year, CBP conducted more than 33,000 searches, almost four times the number from just three years prior. International travelers returning to the United States have reported numerous cases of abusive searches in recent months. While searching through the phone of Zanab Merchant, a plaintiff in the Al-Assad case, a border agent knowingly rifled through privileged attorney-client communications. An immigration office at Boston Logan Airport reportedly searched an incoming Harvard freshman cell phone and laptop, reprimanded the student for friends' social media postings expressing views critical of the U.S. government, and denied the student entry into the country following the search. Okay, the article goes on a little bit, uh, but I'll cut it off there. There have been some other really interesting case studies here, too. And I, I don't know if this gentleman was part of the 11 in this suit or not, but there was also a NASA employee who was carrying NASA equipment, a NASA-issued phone and a NASA-issued laptop with classified and proprietary information on it. And they demanded that he give them the passwords to open these devices. And, and he said no. Um, I think he said no. <laughs> um, basically, he was told, like, look, guys, this is not my stuff. I'm I'm required by my contract and my employment contract to not divulge this information to anybody. Um, I forget what happened with that particular case. I forget if he if he um, let them do it or not. Um, but nevertheless, there are plenty of situations where it's not even under the user's control whether or not they really should be allowing access to these devices. Uh, and one of the other things we've covered in this show before um, that you may not realize is this this law that basically has kind of, I don't know, weakens fourth, your Fourth Amendment rights at the border. Uh, isn't, you know, you might think, okay, it's when I cross, when I like literally cross the border, like come over the bridge into Detroit or, you know, coming up from Mexico or land at the first customs stop on my flight into the country. It's really much broader than that. It's actually the, what they define as border is anywhere within 100 miles of the U.S. border. And I forget what the percentage of population that's contained in that, in that wide swath uh, of land, but it's it's significant. Um, so there definitely needs to be some reforms here, and, 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 and they need to take into account you know that these electronic devices have way more information on them uh, than just about anything we could possibly carry. It's so, so much personal information. And we really need to come up with some balance here. And so I was really happy to see this court ruling, as, of course, was the EFF and the ACLU. So uh, moving on. And I'll, uh, for this next one, I'm just going to read you the, the title of the article from Ars Technica because it's perfect. It says, Google, you can trust us with the medical data you didn't even know we already had, <laughs> which is just perfect. I love the snark. Anyway, so let me read from this article. Google now has access to detailed medical records of tens of millions of Americans, but the company promises it won't mix that medical data with any of the other data Google collects on consumers who use its services. 
Google provided this statement yesterday, shortly after the Wall Street Journal reported that the Google is partnering with Ascension, the company's second largest healthcare system. And quoting says, on a project to collect and crunch the detailed personal health information of millions of people across 21 states, unquote. Google replied uh, in a blog post and they said, quote, to be clear, under this arrangement, Ascension's data cannot be used for any other purpose than for providing these services we're offering under the agreement. And patient data cannot and will not be combined with any Google consumer data, unquote. This would mean Google won't use the medical data to target advertisements at users of Google services. Google also said that its work with Ascension, quote, adheres to industry-wide regulations, including HIPAA, regarding patient data and comes with strict guidance on data privacy, security, and usage, unquote. Patient data shared with Google includes names, birth dates, addresses, family members, allergies, immunizations, radiology scans, hospitalization records, lab tests, medications, medical conditions, and some billing claims and other clinical records, according to a follow-up article in the journal. The partnership covers the personal health records of around 50 million patients of Ascension, the journal wrote. The journal said that, quote, neither doctors nor patients have been formally notified of the arrangement, unquote, and that Google and Ascension began the project in secret last year. Google seems to be correct that the partnership doesn't violate HIPAA, the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. As the journal noted, the law, quote, generally allows hospitals to share data with business partners without telling patients, as long as the information is used only to help the covered entity carry out its health care functions, unquote. An expert quoted by the journal noted that Google would be at risk of violating the law if it used the health data to perform independent research outside the direct scope of patient care. Ascension is not paying Google for these services, the journal wrote, but Google's work with Ascension could lead to profitable ventures. Google is using Ascension's patient data in part to design new software underpinned by advanced artificial intelligence and machine learning that zeroes in on individual patients to suggest changes to their care, the journal wrote. As part of the project, quote, staffers across Alphabet Inc., Google's parent, have access to the patient information internal documents show, unquote, the journal wrote. The news about Google's work with Ascension comes as Google is trying to buy Fitbit for $2.1 billion in a deal that is pending regulatory approval. Fitbit devices are used for health tracking, among other things, and Google wants to use Fitbit to bolster its existing Wear OS platform. But Google's privacy promise should mean that it won't combine any patient data from Ascension with the data it gathers from Fitbit, Wear OS, Google Search, Gmail, Google Docs, Chrome, or any of the other consumer services it provides. And uh, there has been an update on this, and the update reads, The Google Ascension project is now being investigated by the Office for Civil Rights in the Department of Health and Human Services, the Wall Street Journal reported in an update last night. The office said it, Quote, we'll seek to learn more information about this mass collection of individuals' medical records to ensure that HIPAA protections were fully implemented, unquote. Google said it is, quote, happy to cooperate with any questions about the project and that we believe Google's work with Ascension adheres to industry-wide regulations, including HIPAA, regarding patient data and comes with strict guidance on data privacy, security, and usage, unquote. Okay, so let's unpack some of this. Um, first of all, yeah, so... These medical companies that that snarf up all your data, you know, and they, and I'm sure you've gone to multiple different doctors and somehow still being rerouted to the same, you know, my chart system or some other portal where you log in that are common. Uh, I just went to the doctor the other day and they were that I've have not been to in 15 years, but because I was in quote unquote the system, they were able to quickly look up and see all my information, including what drugs I'm currently on. 
and all these things I didn't, you know, so in one sense, it's convenient. I didn't, I didn't have to go through the list other than to confirm whether or not I was still taking these medications, but they already had that information. This is the kind of, you know, centralization of this medical data that's going on behind the scenes because there's, you know, only a few companies that get together and offer these services to the doctors and the, the hospitals and the clinics and, and insurance companies, you know, to say, hey, we'll handle all your data for you. But what that means, of course, that all that data is now centralized in, in small, well, in a few, in a small number of companies, which means it's honestly a goldmine of data that can be used by, you know, companies or hackers or the government alike. So in this case, apparently, uh, the HIPAA regulations that are supposed to protect your health data as being private, and, you know, you sign this notice, you sign this every time you go and sign up as a new patient at a doctor's office, or maybe to refresh your records, you know, one of the forms they always give you is this HIPAA form. So apparently they're staying within the guidelines of the law because, you know, this, your doctor turns this information over to Ascension and Ascension has the right to share that data with business partners in order to accomplish its task. Of course, that's, you know, that's pretty loose language and it seems like a pretty big loophole. And, uh, you know, obviously Google is saying that it, it is keeping this data strictly compartmentalized and it's not going to use any of this data, which is obviously very personal and very personally identifiable to, to build up a profile on you. But as we've seen, you know, the more people have this data, the more places there are for this data to get lost or stolen or, or compromised in some way, or they expose it to that many more people who could use it for nefarious purposes. You know, I mean, what if you were somebody at Google and you found out that your ex-girlfriend or whatever was in this database, you know, it'd be really tempting to kind of look in there and see what's going on with her, you know, just that sort of thing. So on the other hand, you know, obviously that all this data is rich with information that can be used to benefit all of us. Um, you know, they could find some very interesting patterns They could find, you know, weird drug interactions They could find other things in all this data that would help us provide better care to people. So, you know, it's just one of those things where we got to be aware of what's going on. I'm glad that the senators are looking into this uh, to make sure that they're following the letter of the law. And maybe this will, well, this will probably imply some other laws and regulations that we need that weren't considered when HIPAA was created. Some of the other things I think we need to consider now, because even if, if everyone involved has the best intentions, mistakes happen. Um, you know, Hackers will get in, including foreign state uh, governments um, hacking in, and people will just make mistakes. I mean, so many of the data breaches we've seen are just because somebody forgot to lock something, basically, uh, and all this data was just sitting there available. Uh, not this particular data, but um, in many of the breaches, this data is just out there for anybody to find if they should run across it, just because somebody screwed up and just, not maliciously, but just forgot to <laughs> basically put a password on something. So I think we need to look at this in new ways. We need to basically assume that the data is going to be stolen. Just assume that. If you if you were going to assume that, then what would you do? Well, for one thing, you'd probably do some serious anonymizing or de-identifying of the data, right? I mean, having all this data is not so bad if you don't know whose data it is, or if the data doesn't have enough information in it for you to derive uh, who it belongs to. And there are techniques for doing this, and we need to start using them. And we also should be looking at compartmentalizing this data, you know, keeping, not keeping everyone's data in one place and not keeping all the data about one person in one database. 
you know, maybe prescriptions goes in one database and medical conditions goes in another database or, or whatever, and keep these things separate so that, you know, if somebody does get in and get some of that data, they don't get all that data. All right, next up, uh, really kind of concerning article uh, about Android. And we've talked multiple times on the show about Android. And yes, I'm a Mac fanboy. I like Apple products. Um, but it's objectively true that Android devices are just a lot harder to secure uh, and keep private because of the way the ecosystem works. There are just so many hands uh, in the pie. And this article highlights that. So uh, this is from Wired Magazine. Let me read this article. When you buy an Android smartphone, it's rarely pure Android. Manufacturers squeeze in their own apps or give it a fresh coat of interface. Carriers do it too. The resulting stew of pre-installed software and vanilla Android sometimes turns out to be rancid, putting flaws and vulnerabilities on the phone before you even take it out of the box. For proof of just how bad it is, look no further than the 146 vulnerabilities across 29 Android smartphone makers that have just been simultaneously revealed. Yes, that's 146, all discovered by security firm CryptoWire and detailed one by one in a new gargantuan disclosure. Most of the implicated companies operate primarily in Asia, but the list includes global heavyweights like Samsung and Asus as well. While the bugs vary in severity and scope, and in some cases the manufacturers dispute that they're even a threat at all, they illustrate an endemic problem for Android, one that Google has acknowledged. The vulnerabilities CryptoWire turned up and research funded by the Department of Homeland Security encompass everything from unauthorized audio recording to command execution to the ability to modify system properties and wireless settings. What makes them so pernicious, though, is how they get on phones and how hard they are to remove. And this is a quote from uh, CryptoWire CEO Angelos Stavro. He says, we wanted to understand how easy it is for someone to be able to penetrate the device without the user downloading an application. If the problem lies within the device, that means the user has no options. Because the code is deeply buried in the system, in most cases, the user cannot do anything to remove the offending functionality, unquote. It's one thing if you fall for a shady Fortnite download. At least that was a choice you made, and you can also uninstall it. The vulnerabilities CryptoWire found are often pre-installed at system level, and no way to purge them from your device. Again, quoting Angelos, he says, In the race to create cheap devices, I believe that the quality of software is being eroded in a way that exposes the end user. Now, Google provided a statement, and in this statement they say, We appreciate the work of the research community who collaborate with us to responsibly fix and disclose issues such as these. Google, of course, has its own vetting process called the Build Test Suite that checks software for potentially harmful pre-installed apps. BTS launched in 2018 and in its first year prevented 242 of those problematic installs from reaching consumers. The CryptoWire research suggests that BTS has room for improvement. In fairness, it's a problem of enormous scope. According to the presentation on this very topic given this summer by Google security researcher Matty Stone, every Android device ships with 100 to 400 pre-installed apps. Many of those apps originate not from the company that's making the physical device, but from third parties that provide the code for various under-the-hood tasks, or from carriers who have a vested interest in everything from messaging to payments. Most manufacturers are ill-equipped to parse all of those apps for potential risks, and even the largest still allow some sort of carrier influence. Going back to the CryptoWire CEO, he says, quote, The ecosystem involves hundreds of vendors that are not necessarily cooperating with each other or have any process for quality assurance but some of them have more than others, unquote. If there's a silver lining here, it's that Google has taken proactive steps to tamp down on the problem of pre-installed bugs. But as CryptoWire's sweep shows, the overall ecosystem has a long way to go. 
Okay, so yes, and this is something I've brought up on the show many times. Uh, unlike iOS devices, iPhones and iPads, um, that are owned top to bottom, soup to nuts by Apple, uh, both the hardware and the software that Apple strictly controls, Android devices have a whole mishmash of stuff going on, a lot of cooks in the kitchen. So there's the original Android, which, you know, like iOS, could have bugs. iOS has bugs too. But on top of all of that, now it has to go through the cell phone manufacturers, Samsung, Samsung, LG, and all the others, who tweak that software and put on their own apps and other software. And then it goes to the individual carriers like Verizon and AT&T, et cetera, who also, you know, get their fingers in there and start adding their own apps and tweaks uh, and things to personalize the experience on the phone, you know, and in some cases kind of lock you into whatever their, you know, their systems are, which often happens. And what it, what, what it means is you've got this patchwork quilt of software and not everybody works together. Not everybody coordinates. Some of these things may be fine on their own, but when put together, um, expose privacy and security problems. Uh, it's just really, really much, much harder to police and to vet. And in many ways, it's a lot like the differences between uh, Macintosh, Apple Macintosh computers and uh, Windows PCs. It's really the same kind of thing. Apple on the Macintosh side basically owns everything. Uh, All the software and hardware comes from Apple. And what you buy uh, from, you know, in the box, it only comes with Apple stuff. Whereas with PCs, uh, you know, Microsoft works with many different vendors, Dell, HP, Asus, Lenovo, etc. for all the hardware. There's multiple hardware vendors installed that, you know, that have different drivers for the video cards and all the other special hardware devices that go into making a PC. And, you know, and then the vendors themselves, like Dell and HP and whatever, they put their own, like, you know, help software on there. Something They come pre-installed with all sorts of other crap, you know, like free trials for VPNs and... And, and, and free trials for antivirus software and all this other crap. And, and because there's just so much stuff going on, it's just really hard to make it uh, secure. And the privacy aspects are also just, just horrid, right? You know, because who knows, you know, what all those different apps and vendors are doing and what kind of information they might be gathering and yada, 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 yada. So anyway, it's, it, it's very analogous to that situation. Of course, the downside is, you know, if what you get with Apple is what Apple wants to give you. And if you don't like that, you know, obviously, you know, you can always install your own applications and such. Um, but you know, it's a lot more restrictive and, and that's why a lot of people go to Android and windows because they don't want to be restricted. They want to do whatever they want to do. That just comes with consequences. And my point is that for the average person who doesn't understand security and privacy, um, if you, you know, if you're going to make a choice, you know, I would, all, I would go with the one that's by default, uh, more secure and more private. And, and that would be Apple. All right, one more story, then we'll get to uh, my naughty and nice list for 2019. Uh, this is from the Washington Post. It's a follow-up to some other articles we've, that I've talked about recently about Ring Doorbell and how they've been working with police departments around the country. Uh, when I talked about this before, I think it was with somebody from the EFF. Uh, at that point, there was maybe publicized that there were two or 300 uh, deals with police departments. Now that's well over 600 police departments around the country that we know of. Uh, so it's spreading quickly, and um, there's even some more implications thanks to some questions by our representatives, which who are doing their job. So before we get into this, I guess I should, you know, for those of you who aren't aware, uh, just recap briefly what this is. So Ring was a company that created this kind of first product of its type, that, at least that I'd ever seen, uh, what they called a video doorbell. And it replaced your regular doorbell. It's got a button on it like every other doorbell, but it's also got a camera and a microphone and a speaker. 
so that when that doorbell is rung, or even actually it's motion sensitive, as long as somebody comes within view of the camera, you can be notified on your phone or your computer uh, that something has moved across your camera's view. Uh, and certainly if somebody rings the doorbell, you'll notify that somebody's rung your doorbell. And at that point, you can not only see them, but you can actually hear them and then talk back to them if you wish. And honestly, that's really cool. That's very handy. I've got one. I bought one a long time ago and I use it all the time. Um, on my office at home, my home office is in the basement and it's far away from the door. So it's very common for someone to come and ring my doorbell and, and they try to sell me something or they want to leave a package and needs a signature or whatever. Uh, and it's really handy for me to just be able to look at them and talk to them from my basement, you know, and if it's a telemarketer, not a telemarketer, but if it's somebody trying to sell me stuff, I can just ignore them. Uh, but if someone needs to, you know, needs for me to sign it, I can say, Hey, just a minute, I'm down in the basement. I'll be, I'll be right up kind of thing. Uh, or if I'm traveling, I can also see when someone comes to my door, or, you know, I, there's a lot of porch pirates going on, especially around the holidays, you know, people having stuff stolen off their, off their front porch. And this video surveillance system basically deters that. And it, and there've been people that have been caught because of these systems, uh, taking something off someone's doorstep and, you know, the video gives them away. However, well, I bought my ring doorbell back when ring was an independent company. And before Amazon bought them I, for gosh, I think it was like $2 billion or something. So Amazon bought ring. Uh, and now it's an Amazon based product. And along the way, Amazon has decided, uh, that they want to sell a lot more of these things. And the angle they've chosen is to approach local police departments and market it as a neighborhood protection product. Um, and what they've done is, you know, they've worked with police departments to offer discounts to their constituents, the people that lives in, in the neighborhoods that they protect, uh, to give them discounts on these cameras if they install them. Uh, and they've got an app called a neighbor's app that they can use where the police can actually request video from your cameras. Uh, I think like, for example, let's say there was a robbery and this, uh, person was, uh, believed to draw, to drive through your neighborhood. They might request all, uh, you know, from all the neighbors on the streets where they think that car may have driven, you know, Hey, can we have all the video, you know, from this time period to this time period. And you have a choice to say, no, you can, you can decline. And according to Amazon, they don't tell police who declined, you know, so you're not going to get on the police's, you know, <laughs> bad list. So we've, we've talked, we've talked about that and, and what some of the implications of that are. And let me, let me read, just read from this article and then I'll, we'll talk a little bit more. So again, this is from the Washington post. Police officers who download videos captured by homeowners ring doorbell cameras can keep them forever and share them with whomever they'd like without providing evidence of crime, the Amazon-owned firm told a lawmaker this month. More than 600 police forces across the country have entered into partnerships with the camera giant, allowing them to quickly request and download video recorded by Ring's motion-detecting, internet-connected cameras inside and around America's homes. The company says that the videos can be a critical tool in helping law enforcement investigate crimes such as trespassing, burglary, and package theft, and then homeowners are free to decline the requests. But some lawmakers and privacy advocates say the system could empower more widespread police surveillance, fuel racial profiling, and spark new neighborhood fears. In September, following reports about Ring's police partnerships by the Washington Post and other outlets, Senator Edward J. Markey of Massachusetts wrote to Amazon asking for details about how it protected the privacy and civil liberties of people caught on camera. Since that report, the number of law enforcement agencies working with Ring has increased by nearly 50%. In two responses from Amazon's Vice President of Public Policy, Brian Huseman, which Markey's office made public Tuesday, the company said it placed few restrictions on how police used or shared the videos offered up by homeowners. 
Police in those communities can use Ring software to request up to 12 hours of video from anyone within half a square mile of a suspected crime scene, covering a 45-day time span, Huseman wrote. Police are required to include a case number for the crime they are investigating, but not any other details or evidence related to the crime or their request. And this is a quote, I believe, from Markey. He says, quote, Connected doorbells are well on the way to becoming a mainstay of American households, and the lack of privacy and civil rights protections for innocent residents is nothing short of chilling, he said. Markey said in a statement that Ring's policy showed that the company had failed to enact basic safeguards to protect Americans' privacy. Again, quoting, If you're an adult walking your dog or a child playing on the sidewalk, you shouldn't have to worry that Ring's products are amassing footage of you and that law enforcement may hold that footage indefinitely and share that footage with any third parties, unquote. Siobhan Lewis, a spokeswoman for Ring's Neighbors Social Network, said in a statement that, quote, Ring users place their trust in us to protect their homes and communities, and we take that responsibility very seriously. Ring does not own or otherwise control users' videos, and we intentionally design the Neighbors portal to ensure that users get to decide whether to voluntarily provide their videos to the police, unquote. Markey's questions focused in on the ways the cameras could be used to capture children and other passers-by without their knowledge or consent. Ring's terms of service state that the user must install the camera so they do not take any recordings beyond the boundary of a user's property, such as public road or sidewalk. When asked by Markey how the company enforced that, Huseman wrote that users are responsible for following the rules that Ring does not view users' videos to verify compliance. Ring's privacy policy states that it does not knowingly collect personal information online from children under the age of 13. When asked by Markey how the company ensured that its cameras would not record children, Huseman wrote that no such oversight system existed. Its customers own and control their video recordings, and similar to any security camera, Ring has no way to know or verify that a child has come within range of the device. All right, so there's a, there are a lot of weird aspects of this, that, um, and some of them were brought up in this article, like whether or not you have the camera trained and you can, even if the camera includes, you know, your sidewalk or the, you know, the street or the house across, across from you, you can set up the motion detection to only trigger. And you probably would, because this is what you'd really want in real life, set the motion to trigger only when someone approaches your door. So you can kind of, you can, you can edit this little polygon that shapes, you know, where the motion has to occur for the motion sensor to trip. So you can do that, but there's really, I mean, I, I can attest to this. It's really difficult. I, I don't know how I could have pointed my camera in such a way that it only covered my property. That's just honestly not feasible. So that's really kind of a, a red herring. They can say that all they want, but in reality, most people really cannot control this. For one thing, you can't really change the angle that much. So it just kind of points wherever your doorbell points, and it covers a pretty wide arc uh, of a video on purpose. I mean, it's trying to get in as much as possible. It's kind of like a fisheye lens almost. So it covers a lot of ground and you know, the, the chances of you being able to somehow, God, I don't even know what you do, like somehow tape it off or do something so that it only records your property would be very difficult. That said, I do think that every person has a right to record anything that occurs on their own property and do whatever they want with that video, including hand it over to the police. The real trick is, is, you know, what do you do with video of your neighbors across the street doing something that you happen to capture on your camera? You know, I would argue that that is an invasion of privacy. Anyway, this is a really murky area and we're really gonna have to get this sorted out. So I'm glad that uh, Senator Markey has wandered into this and demanded some answers. And, you know, I'm sure that there will be at least some proposed uh, legislation and, and regulation that comes out of this. So uh, we'll see where this goes. In the meantime, me personally, uh, I've, I'm looking at an alternative. There's a there's a brand called, I think it's pronounced Eufy, E-U-F-Y. 
which I believe is a division of Anchor, A-N-K-E-R, that sells a lot of really great stuff. And they've got a video doorbell out as well. And instead of using the cloud to store the video, it stores it locally on a little SD card. Uh, so it's much more private. And so I just ordered one. It was on sale, actually. Normally, I think it's 160 bucks. It was on sale for $100, uh, ironically, on Amazon for a Cyber Monday or Black Friday deal or whatever. And uh, so I'm going to give that a shot. And, uh, you know, personally, as much as I've enjoyed the ring, you know, I'm kind of having a hard time supporting these guys uh, going forward now that Amazon has bought them and they're kind of doing some shady stuff with it as far as I'm concerned. And as you might suspect, that leads right into my tip of the week. And this week, it's a it's a really big tip. It's multiple tips, I guess. Because uh, I'd like to walk through my recent blog entry and newsletter um, that I sent out that I do every year now, right? usually right before Thanksgiving, before the big shopping season starts. Uh, I call it my best and worst gifts of 2019. Now, I'm not going to go through every single thing. I'm not going to read my whole article because it's actually pretty long, but I am going to kind of touch on some highlights and then I'll just refer you to my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com to get the full story. You can uh, read all the details and there's a lot of great links to, you know, I make reference to some <laughs> to some privacy violations and things that uh, you can get the full story if you want to go there. But let's start off uh, this little naughty and nice list. Let's Let's start with the naughty. Let's start with the ones that I definitely do not recommend. Uh, and for two years running, the number one worst gift has got to be DNA tests. Now, I, I understand that these are really cool. Uh, I get the draw. I understand why they make a really unique gift. You know, you can give this uh, to somebody for a present and they can put a little spit on a swab and send it in and then get back potentially a lot of ancestry information and of course ancestry.com and 23andme and some of these other companies are a lot of their focus is on ancestry like you know were you related to somebody famous where did your family originally come from you know those kind of things and i understand that you know that has a lot of appeal they're, they're, they're cheap these things are usually under a hundred dollars and uh you know it's unique you know we're all trying to find these cool new gifts that are different you know to give away and this seems like a great one right well Here's the problem. Uh, so not only might you answer those questions, but you might answer a bunch of questions you didn't really want to answer. Like, is this person that I call dad, is he really my biological father? You know, am I related to a wanted criminal? Uh, because they're actually, uh, cops are actually using these databases to find criminals because you, your DNA is shared at least on some, at some part, some fraction with every blood relative you have. And then you also got to think about this DNA, I'm sure that that if you read the privacy policies, and I've got an article link that kind of goes through some of these in depth, it's really kind of creepy what they can do with this DNA. Basically, you're giving it to them forever, and they can kind of do whatever they want with it. And, uh, you know, they can say all they want about how they anonymize the data, but your DNA is you. I mean, if there's, there's no other... It, it's better than any fingerprint or iris scan that could possibly be. It, it is your makeup. It is you. And it tells so much about you. And we're, and we're still cracking DNA and figuring out all the different things that it can tell us about us. And, if, you know, who's to know 10, 20 years from now what that DNA could tell that we don't know that it can tell today? Perhaps it can, you know, it can tell you if you were predisposed to certain chronic illnesses. And, and we already know that it could do that in some cases, but I'm sure we're just going to get better. What if, uh, you know, what if insurance companies decide they want to buy this data and then all of a sudden deny you coverage? They'll, they'll come up with some excuse. I know that pre-existing conditions are supposed to be covered, but 
you know, they could find some way. Maybe, maybe they'll raise your rates or they'll find some other way to deny you based on this data. And then, you know, this data exists somewhere in a database. What if it's just outright stolen? You know, what if uh, nation states or hackers or our own government intelligence agencies get their hands on this stuff? What would they do with that data? And unlike the problem with anything biometric, and this is why, I, you know, I, I don't ever recommend fingerprints, face IDs, iris scans, these kind of things as your primary means of authentication, because you can't change it. If, if someone were to get a get that data, somehow be able to digitize those biometrics and have a copy of that, it's not like a password that you can just go back and change because there was a data breach. It, like I said, it is you. Short of disfiguring yourself, it that that information is gone. And of course, with DNA, you can't even you can't even do that. You can't change your DNA at all. So anyway, uh, this two years running as as top my list as the as the worst privacy related gift that you can give. Now, if you've if it's too late, if you've already done it, uh, you can contact the companies and say that you want your data to be permanently deleted. And if you've already gotten the report, there's really no reason for them to keep that data other than to use it for their own purposes. So I would certainly recommend doing that. If you've already done this, uh, either somebody you know, or you yourself have sent in this data, I would contact that company and do whatever it takes to have them completely remove your data from their database and hopefully throw away any biological samples that they have kept. All right, moving on. What are some of the other worst gifts? Well, obviously, from what, from what we've been talking about here, Ring Doorbell uh, is one that, you know, I might have two or three years ago said, oh, this is a great gift. It's, it's really cool. Uh, this particular one now, I would have to say, do not give Ring Doorbells. There are some other privacy-respecting products. Certainly, this Eufy one seems to be one, which is why I ordered it. Uh, the data is not kept in the cloud. It's only kept locally on your device. So only you should ever be able to have access to it. It is encrypted, so hopefully even if it's hacked, it's not usable. So I would certainly recommend that over the uh, the Ring doorbell. And just kind of expanding on that, basically any gift you give somebody that's internet connected, has cloud storage, and has a microphone or a camera on it is something you should really think twice about. Now, uh, there are certainly some exceptions to this rule. Like for me, for me, the Ring doorbell thing, since the camera is facing out, I'm less worried about my personal privacy. Now, of course, you do have to worry about your neighbor's privacy uh, in the Ring case because that video is stored on the cloud and that could be stolen or hacked or given away. And, and then we got privacy problems. We've got mass surveillance problems. And I guess the same is true for interior cameras. If the cameras store that data only locally and do not have an internet connection, then that's fine, I think, too. Where you get into trouble is almost all these devices, for various reasons, some of which are marketing reasons, store this data in the cloud. And that means that they have access to it too, and they could be selling access to somebody else, or that that, you know, that could be hacked and stolen. And, you know, it's just, it, it, that's, where, that's where things kind of break down. That's where the privacy issues really begin. <laughs> so I've talked about this several times. One where I'm a little less worried, actually, are things like the Amazon Echo and Apple's HomePod and Google Home products uh, that do have speakers or that do have speakers and microphones and they do listen to you. But I do understand how that technology works. And while they do listen to you all the time, they're listening for their wake word. They're listening for the trigger word. So you have to say those special words or word that wakes up the device. And then it's only after you say that word that they record a short snippet of what you say. And then that snippet goes to the cloud for analysis. 
now. Of course, that's still your voice and your data going off to the cloud where it could be stolen or used improperly by somebody else. But, you know, if you're asking what are the sports scores, what's the weather, set a timer, you know, how many cups to a pint, you know, those kind of things, do you really care? I don't know. Now, if you're for some reason asking these devices about some medical condition or is there something a little more embarrassing, you know, then obviously that's something you might want to consider. And we've talked about the recent stories about how humans were listening to some of these and that really got a lot of people upset. Uh, but again, I know why that is too. Uh, they have to, you know, kind of vet these things and improve these things. And, you know, they, as I'm sure you're aware, if you have any of these devices, they don't always get it right. Uh, so they're constantly trying to improve them. And so what they want to find is the cases where, it's, where they get it wrong then a human has to listen and say, okay, this is what it should have been and correct it so that maybe next time uh, it'll get it right. Now, in, if they did that, obviously all that data should be completely anonymized. They should not, who, not know who is speaking. They should strictly be there to evaluate what was said versus what was interpreted and make sure that they line up. Um, but apparently that wasn't always the case. So, you know, these companies have since put in some checks and balances there. And actually, I'll put a link in the show notes and there will be a link in my article about how to set the privacy settings on all of these. And you'll be happy to know if you happen to have a HomePod or a Siri device that Apple has recently changed its uh, policy to opt in, which means that by default, unless if you do nothing, it will not send your recordings to any humans to be listened to. However, Google and Amazon, I believe, are not there yet. So you do have to go in and this article that I'm going to link to tells you how uh, you have to go in and opt out. You have to tell them, I do not ever want a human to listen to my recordings, even for quality purposes. All right, next up, and also related to this, basically anything from Facebook. <laughs> so Facebook of all of them, I mean, Google's bad, but Facebook is just horrid. I mean, they have shown time and time again, they have no interest whatsoever in your privacy, and they want to monetize you as much as they possibly can. Uh, and they want to know every little single thing about you. So any product from Facebook, I mean, including Facebook itself, but, you know, Facebook portal, which is this little video camera device that allows you to talk to other Facebook people. Okay, great. Um, but my God, I would not put a camera connected to Facebook anywhere near my house uh, or a microphone. All right. Two more things that make the naughty list. And just one of them in general is kind of health trackers. Be very careful. Again, they could be very handy, and very motivating you know, for you to be able to track how many steps you've made, how many miles you've run. You can also use some of these same devices for figuring out how well you sleep. You know, do you toss and turn a lot at night uh, to, to kind of give you some feedback on your sleep quality? A lot of these apps and devices can be used to track, you know, menstrual cycles and other things that are very personal. And these things have value. I understand that. But just realize that you need to understand what data is being collected, where it's being saved, and who it's being shared with. So just be very aware uh, when you're giving these kind of gifts, what the privacy implications are, and you know maybe think twice. And finally, uh, Android phones. But honestly, any Android devices. Uh, as I was talking about earlier, you know you have to be really careful with Android devices, and for lots of reasons. One of one, the one we talked about earlier today. It was just how complicated their ecosystem is. How many different cooks are in the kitchen? How many different people are contributing? to the software that you eventually receive fresh out of the box. It's been modified by many different people along the way, your carrier, your phone manufacturer, and of course, Google, and perhaps others. There's third parties that they contract with as well. You know, so one of the reasons some of these devices are cheaper and the same is true for PCs is because they get paid to put some of these apps on your phone from the get-go. 
um, because some of these things have free trials or bug you to pay for something and eventually make money. Or sometimes it's just to kind of make sure they get in front of somebody and to have it pre-installed is worth money to somebody. So they pay these companies, hey, I'll give you, a, you know, 50 cents per phone uh, if you will have my app pre-installed. And that cuts the price of the phone, hopefully, but it also is more profit to the phone maker or to the carrier. And it's to your detriment. And in particular, when we're talking about really super cheap Android devices, Android phones, and Android tablets, just avoid them like the plague. A lot of them come from no-name companies uh, in Asia. It's already been shown that a lot of these devices come pre-installed with trackerware, uh, where it's reporting you know, everywhere you go on the web and all sorts of other information about you, sending it straight back to you know, God knows who company somewhere on the planet and what they're going to do with that data. So... You know, it's it's cheap for a reason. Uh, the security is probably horrible or non-existent, and the privacy is probably horrendous. Okay, so we've talked about the naughty list. Now let's get to the nice list. What are the things that I do recommend, things that you should consider maybe given as uh, gifts to somebody that respect privacy and security or enhance their privacy or security? So here's a couple of actually concrete ideas for some for gifts that you can give. Uh, first of all, and this isn't really a cyber thing, but it's uh, very important for uh, protecting against identity theft, is a paper shredder. And you want to get a cross-cut shredder, not just a, and I think most of them are these days, which is, means it doesn't just do strips, it actually does like confetti. <laughs> it turns your documents into confetti. That's what you want. And you might think, you know, do I really need to do that? Well, you know, if you're throwing away... Utility bills, bank statements, financial statements, uh, prescriptions, uh, any other kind of personal information, you've got to realize that as soon as that stuff hits your curb, it's fair game. There's actually no law protecting that stuff. Anybody can go through your garbage. Now, how often does that happen? Yeah, I don't know. But the, it's so easy just to get a, a shredder. You can get one off Amazon for you know under 50 bucks. Uh, or go to your you know, office depot or Staples or whatever and get one. Just just you know get one that's got a decent rating. It doesn't have to be super fancy. You know, and instead of just throwing those things away, just run them through the shredder. And by the way, that includes, you know, when you get those credit card offers or, or uh, insurance offers or whatever in the mail, shred those as well so that somebody else, you know, can't pick that out of there and then try to get a credit card in your name and maybe have it sent to a different address. You know, those kind of things as well. Most shredders will handle credit cards and heavier duty stuff like that. And one more, and this is kind of a fun one, um, but it's also kind of a weird one. It's, an, <laughs> it's another one you're going to say, what? Are you kidding me? Uh, and that is... When you're traveling and you've got your phone and you're running low on juice and your battery's going to die and, you, and you, you need to get it charged really badly, you really do not want to use a public USB port. Now, public AC is fine. If you've got your own little wall nugget uh, that you plug into a regular AC power outlet, that, that, that's fine. But a lot of airports today, including air, airplanes themselves, uh, coffee shops and other places now actually have these free juice juice up terminals, right? Where you can plug your device directly into a USB port to power it up. But you got to realize that USB is more than just power. USB is power and data. If you actually look inside a USB cable or at the end of the connector, you'll see four wires. Two of those wires are for power. Two of those wires are for data. And because there's a data line there and because the way USB was set up, it can actually transfer software, usually drivers, like you're plugging in a mouse or a keyboard. Um, it might come with a driver built in so you don't have to download one yourself. Uh, but there's other things too, and USB devices are almost universally trusted by your phone or your computer. So that when you plug in a USB, USB device, it just trusts it, which could mean installing software that's on that device. And it is possible, and it wouldn't be the airport that did this, it would be somebody hacking uh, the USB port to install software 
on that USB port such that other devices that are plugged into that USB port can be compromised. Hacked. Yes, that's true. It happens. Uh, it's called juice jacking <laughs> um, because you're trying to juice up your phone and instead your device gets hijacked. Uh, so what do you do? Uh, well, obviously you can carry your own charger. That's better. Uh, you could either carry a, a portable battery charger. Those are great little gifts. They, there's tons and tons of them on the market today. Little portable batteries where you can top off your device. Uh, or little wall nuggets that you can plug in so that you're plugged into an AC outlet and that just gives you power. But another really interesting and kind of funny gift might make a great stocking stuffer is what we like to call a USB condom. Now, as it may imply, uh, it protects your device. You don't know where that port has been. Uh, and like uh, in the physical world, you want to cover that up so that you don't catch something. Uh, and the way this works is uh, it's a little either it can be a cable or it can be just a little um, adapter. And what this adapter does is it only allows the two power lines to go through. It cuts off the data lines. So it allows power to go through your uh, to your phone, lets you charge your phone, but does not let any data travel back or forth. Uh, which protects your device from a dirty outlet, a dirty USB port that might be there to hack your device. Now, you can get these out of Amazon. I think I've seen a two-pack for like 10 bucks, and multi-packs too if you really want to give away to a whole bunch of people. If you search on USB condom, I think you'll find it. They've got other more, <laughs> maybe more politically correct names. Uh, but that, that'll find some of these products and you'll know what I mean. All right, now let's talk about some privacy-enhancing products. And the big one this year is one that I actually just got myself. I finally got my unit, and I have not had a chance to test it yet. But uh, I want to support this product and products like this product, um, and you might want to do this too. And it's called Winston Privacy. And if, uh, if you were around this summer, I interviewed the CEO about this product. Uh, and you can go back and check out that podcast. Uh, very, very interesting. And this guy basically was in the ad tech industry. And what that means today is it's tracking industry. This is marketing that wants to know as much about you as possible and target ads based on that information. And a few years back when he realized that the whole thing was just getting way out of hand and, and these you know ad tech companies were just doing way too much data collection and sharing, he flipped sides. Uh, and he decided to create a little box, a little appliance that is basically privacy in a box and called Winston because Winston was the main character in the uh, Orwell's 1984 book. Uh, and the idea being to help you uh, avoid things like mass surveillance and tracking uh, from all these ad companies. And all it is, it's this little box. It's not much bigger than a deck of cards, maybe a, that length square and about as thick. You take this thing and you plug it in and you put it between your, your cable modem and the rest of your house, which usually means between your cable modem and your Wi-Fi router. And basically it sits between you and the internet, all your devices in your home, every single device, your phone, your computer, your laptop, your tablets, your TVs, your IOT devices, all these things that need to get to the internet go through this one point. And this device has all sorts of protections built into it. And all you got to do is plug it in and supposedly within 60 seconds, it is up and running and ready to go. And it does several things. First of all, it blocks a lot of known malware sites and tracking sites automatically. So no matter what device it is, prevents rogue apps or, or tracking software or tracking ads on your web uh, from reaching these tracking sites. It also blocks a lot of tracking cookies and it does some other things like trying to prevent um, and defeat browser fingerprinting, which is really, really hard to do. And I'm not sure, honestly, how good of a job it does, but anything is welcome. It also does some really interesting VPN-like things. It actually kind of has this mesh communications thing where it talks to other Winston boxes and kind of bounces your traffic around 
so that the websites and places you go to don't actually see your true IP address. Now, that's got to have some weird effects, kind of like a VPN, where it might say, hey, I don't know this device, I, don't, I haven't seen this device, and may challenge you to do some more uh, authentication. But that may be a small price to pay for uh, enhancing your privacy. Now, it's not cheap. It does cost a couple hundred bucks, I think. Um, you can it, They've got various sales. So if you go to the Winston Privacy site, um, and you can find that link in my, uh, in my blog, it will tell you what the current sale is and where you can get the best price. And there's also a subscription. There's, a, there's an ongoing subscription because they do have software updates, and they are improving the product. So that's kind of how you help them with that. Uh, so And you can buy a lifetime subscription if you want, which I went ahead and did. Uh, or you can just pay by the month or by the year. So while it's not cheap... It is sort of a turnkey solution, and if it works, you know, as well as it says it does, you know, it's kind of a one-stop shop. And it might be certainly if you're concerned about your privacy or you know somebody else who is, uh, it could be a really cool and interesting gift. Some of the other things I talk about, and we're kind of running along here, so I don't want to get into every one of them. You might want to just read the article, and that is to kind of replace some some of the more common online services with privacy respecting services. Uh, Google obviously is a big one. Google has so many different services; it's crazy. And some of the ones I talk about on the web is uh, things like cloud storage, and that would be more of a replacement for things like Dropbox uh, or OneDrive uh, or some of those other online storage on, and syncing utilities. And that is sync.com. Uh, I really like it. I've been using it myself. I uh, highly recommend that. Uh, and then there's some other ones like you, some other things like email and calendaring and contacts and Google Docs. Uh, they could be hard to replace, but I did find one vendor that handles all four of those that I really like so far. Uh, it's called mailbox.org. They're actually, believe it or not, there are many, many companies that are trying to do this, but um, I looked at several of them. Uh, and the one that stuck out for me that kind of did all those things well for a very reasonable price was mailbox.org. Now it's in Germany, so you're going to pay in euros. That's about four euros a month, I believe, which is uh, currently close to four bucks US, which to me is totally worth it. So uh, anyway, check that out. Um, you can, again, it, it does both, it does calendar, it does email, it does contact list, address book, uh, and it, does, it even does Google Docs. So it'll do like basically Word, Excel, and PowerPoint all on the web and for a very reasonable price. So you might want to check that out. Another great gift is a, a VPN service. This is something that I think all of us should have available to us on our mobile devices and our laptops particularly, and even at home, because frankly, our ISPs, our internet service providers, are watching everything we do and they're selling that information. So if you want to prevent that as well, you really need to be using a VPN just about everywhere. Uh, and there was a really long, very thorough, thoughtful review on Wirecutter that was very privacy-oriented about VPNs, um, and they picked TunnelBear. Um, and I, that's what I've been using and I, I can highly recommend that as well. One other little stocking stuffer uh, that you might want to consider for somebody who's, uh, concerned about privacy is a webcam cover. And, and I don't really mean like the ones like you set on top of your computer monitor, those kind of bigger and clunky for those. Honestly, you could just use a sticky note, just take a little post-it note and stick it over the camera. Why? Uh, because I know this sounds paranoid, but it is possible if a hacker gets into your system it is sometimes possible for them to be able to turn your camera and its microphone on to watch and listen to you without you knowing it. Sometimes even without turning on the little, you know, green or red activity light that says that it's on. How often is this done? Oh, no, probably not often. But, you know, you know for peace of mind, it's cheap. Uh, you can buy these little webcam covers. First of all, posters are dirt cheap. But for, for your laptop in particular, uh, or if you happen to have an iMac that has a built-in uh, camera right into the monitor, uh, they have these little slide covers. They're very small they're, and they're very, very thin. You kind of stick it over your camera hole 
and it's got a little slide thing. You slide it over to cover it and you slide it back to open it so you can use it. Uh, very cheap, very simple, makes a great stocking stuffer. Uh, and I've got, again, I've got links to uh, some ones, particular ones that I like that you that I've tried um, on my blog entry. Whew, okay, we're almost done. <laughs> so I know it's been a long one. Thanks for hanging in there. Uh, a couple more things uh, that I might recommend are giving the gift of knowledge. There's a couple books I might recommend. The first one uh, would be Data and Goliath by Bruce Schneier. Uh, he is a world-renowned security expert. He was on my show. He was on my 100th episode. I was so happy to have him on the show uh, as my guest. But it's a, he's written several, several books. Uh, but this one, I think, is probably his best. And it really talks about data privacy and why it's so important and why... It's some of the real reasons why it's such a big deal. It's not so much, well, you know, I don't care if they read my emails, I'm boring. It's way bigger than that. Um, and this book gets into a lot of the details of what it really means to have your data being used by both corporations and governments and the power imbalance that that creates. There's another fiction book that I'd like to recommend that's got some really good kind of morals in it. Uh, and that's called Little Brother from Cory Doctorow. Um, it's a fun read. It's an exciting read. It's kind of a cyber thriller set in the not too distant future and but what it really kind of explains, first of all, it kind of gets in some fun geeky stuff like encryption and secure communications and all that kind of stuff. That's that's really kind of cool from that, you know, from kind of a geeky standpoint. But it also really kind of gives you a not too implausible reason to <laughs> to protect your privacy more and to understand that encryption is for everybody. It's not just for people who want to hide what they're doing. I would highly recommend uh, that if you're certainly if you kind of want to, you know, want a fun fiction read that kind of sneaks in some good privacy and technology stuff on the side. And obviously, finally, I have to recommend my own book, uh, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. It really makes a great gift. If you're going to give somebody um, a computer or some other IoT devices, this has got it covered. It's a great companion for all of these things, and it's good for all ages and covers so many different topics. It's got 150 different tips in it, and it's got you know pictures with step-by-step instructions uh, that tell you how to do everything. And then you know, and it's got also big sections on why it's important. And you can, if you want, you can just skip those and go straight to the checklists. Try to cover both those bases. If you're just the person who doesn't really care why it's important, but is you're you're good enough just to trust that uh, that I'm telling you what you need to do, then and you just want to know how to do it, it does that as well. And it can also be good to help uh, to get this book so you can help other people do these things as well. So that's that's covered most of it, but there's still plenty of other things that I did not cover. So uh, if you if, if you liked what we heard so far and you want to get more, definitely check out my blog article, The Best and Worst Gifts for 2019. And just go to firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. You'll find that and more. And if you want these things delivered to you automatically, you can sign up to my newsletter because uh, my newsletter is almost always the same as my blog. Wow, whew, that was a long one. Thanks for hanging in there, everybody. Um, but I really wanted to get through that. I've got more news for you next week, so look look forward to that. I do have another interview I'm trying to line up, um, which should be really interesting. And then we've got, boy, Christmas and New Year's right around the corner. So if you haven't already, go ahead and go. Please subscribe to the podcast. That way you won't miss a thing. And again, check out my website for a lot of other resources, not just my book, but other resources as well. Uh, that's firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com. Do take special care. The holidays is a really big time for scams. Charity scams, uh, delivery scams, uh, all sorts of stuff. So be uh, especially on the lookout over the holidays for scams and help 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 your loved ones as well. Uh, one more thing I will say uh, that if you want to get the digital copy of the book right now uh, until December 3rd, A-Press, my publisher, is having a sale on several cybersecurity-related books for just $7. 
So for seven bucks, you can download a digital copy of my book. You know, maybe you want to kind of do that first to give it a try. And if you really like it, you know, you might want to uh, spend seven bucks to see if it's if it's what you want. And then, you know, maybe that will kind of prompt you to, to buy some paper copies for, for gifts. Uh, personally, when it comes to reference books, I like having a hard copy. I love I love my Kindle when it comes to, you know, fiction and stuff like that. But when it comes to anything, you know, kind of reference material, I still like having the Dead Tree version. And that's going to do it. Thanks for tuning in. Thanks for listening. Again, we'll have another uh, some more news next week. So tune in for that. And as always, everybody, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your dropper stuff.